business investing today is supposed to be all about the cold, calculating scale of software. So why are some investors talking about people so much? Today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 6 of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies, and we need your help. I'm your host. I'm Chris Wink, the CEO and co-founder of Technically. We are a news organization that reports on local economies and change. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. They want to strengthen the ecosystem for female founders and advance inclusive capital. That includes diversifying the pipeline of investors and supporters. That's why we're here, too. Today, most investors are trained to believe that the only way to get above market returns is to avoid humans at all costs. I mean, that's not entirely untrue, but we still haven't gotten rid of those pesky humans. Speaking of which, for this episode, I am joined by one of the best of those pesky humans, technically reporter Michael Butler. Hello there, Michael. Hey, what's going on, Chris? How you doing? Um, all right. So, Michael, give it to us. What are we exploring on today's Off the Sidelines? Well, this might be a counterintuitive idea. How can investing in people maximize your returns? In people? Yes, this is crazy. So, like, when you look at a standard business pitch deck, there is one little slide about the leadership team. It's like three headshots hidden away. And then there should be, like, five slides about why your technology is dope. And, of course... Of course, investors and entrepreneurs will say that they got to hire great people and you got to love your clients. But really, most investors are usually saying, get rid of the people. So today we're looking at those who are saying something very different. I love it. Bring the people. Okay, so to make this case of why investors might care about people, we're going to explore two different approaches, getting more people to be entrepreneurs and how a community of people might be the most powerful intellectual property around. First, there's this guy. The idea is that, you know, we have the right to speech, we have the right to worship, we have the right to assembly. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also believe that entrepreneurship is a fundamental right. Entrepreneurial opportunity is something that everybody should have core access to. That's our first guest, Victor Wayne, talking about a new organization he founded called The Right to Start, which advocates for entrepreneurial opportunity. So, Victor, you, you had the conversation with him. How'd that go? Pretty well. He's an interesting guy. Victor comes from a family of self-starters. Both his parents and grandparents established their own businesses. He served as a VP of entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation and is even an entrepreneur himself. Right. So, so Kauffman Foundation, the National Foundation, does a bunch of research on entrepreneurship. And, and Victor's work, too, from being at Kauffman, but now what he's doing at Right Start, it, it's laying the groundwork to make the case that anyone who wants economic growth, yeah, including business investors, should care a whole lot about who can become an entrepreneur, both, you know, to grow fast growth SaaS companies, but also like the next generation of small businesses, too. Right. So in my conversation with Victor, um, it focuses on what both investors and entrepreneurs can do to support the growth of new businesses. He thinks investors are missing out on major market returns because way too few people have the skills and support to grow companies. Okay, we, so we got Victor on the like needing more people to even bring the companies to market. Then we got the second approach to the people side of investor returns. It goes like this. The way we see it is humans are craving community more than ever. The platforms to connect each other are here. And we all need to get scrappier on how we sell. And we believe that doing it through community 
adds a lot of differentiated value. Okay, so that's the co-founder and general partner of the Community Fund, Lolita Tab. Her brand new fund focuses specifically on community-driven companies. And by community-driven, we mean like membership groups or other models built around a group of people. Right. This is the idea that a lot of software really isn't all that hard to recreate. If you get enough users, sure, it could be coming about the data. But her thesis is that companies that focus on building a community of people will beat those that don't. She argues that it can reduce customer acquisition costs and lots of lots of other classic metrics. People keep other people sticky to their product. Right. And a lot of companies we might call technology companies aren't really necessarily powered by fancy whiz-bang software. I remember at a technically developers conference, we had a teenager show up and show off how that weekend she had basically built a Twitter clone with Ruby on Rails in a weekend. So... Sure, Twitter has massive data and, and that can power machine learning and, and improve product. But really, 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 why Twitter works for, for some of us, why it works, why we stick around is there's a community of people around it. Yep. And that's why Peloton isn't just a fitness a company. It has a community of people riding and competing or whatever that madness is. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's not just lifestyle brands, but real product companies can get stronger when people are at the center of them. So thinking about that, is technically an example of that? Right. Are we an example? Yeah, I think so. And it's it's interesting the way Lolita uses the word community, because I think for a certain investor class, community just has this connotation of charity. And she fights that, that, you know, her point is that if you can build a community, they can solve problems for each other, that there's scale in that. So we'll come back to Lita and, and community companies, but let's get back to your conversation with Victor. Yeah, let's start here, Chris, with something I know you're always ranting about, that we're, <laughs> that we're missing massive economic opportunities because entrepreneurship is declining in the United States. The rate of entrepreneurship in the U.S. today is about half what it was just about four decades ago. And so the question is, why is that? How has entrepreneurship fallen so much in a country that's supposed to prize entrepreneurship? Right. And you can actually point to a whole bunch of reasons. There's not like one reason only, but you could say part of its demographic shifts, uh, part of its uh, cultural shifts, but then you can also look at policy issues such as healthcare. You know, it's become a real expense and hard for people to move healthcare insurance depending on where their jobs are. Mm -hmm. uh, student debt has actually held back a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when people are younger. And then you can look at all sorts of issues around regulatory policy. And then on top of that, you've got issues around equity. Capital rates of capital access are much lower for certain segments of the population. And so you see all these different inequities. And as the U.S. workforce becomes more diverse, some of those old barriers are still in place. It's like, one of the things that people talk about is workforce training. Right. Like we should train our workers to be able to be more entrepreneurial. But our workforce training and development system in the United States takes about $34 billion of federal and state and local money, which is a lot of money. Almost all of it goes into teaching people corporate skills for an industrial era. It teaches people to take jobs, not to make jobs. It teaches people to be job seekers and not job creators. Yeah, definitely. One of the biggest takeaways that people regularly tout when they talk about the previous uh, recession was how many firms that just got their start during that time have become like Fortune 500 or just these mega uh, companies now, some even unicorns. And like businesses like Uber quickly come to mind because Uber essentially doesn't own every single Uber vehicle, but 
they own a business that's able to like generate capital, even if they don't really own anything. So how can entrepreneurs during the current recession find ways to grow their businesses? You know, for instance, like you're right, Uber doesn't own, it doesn't own taxis, it doesn't own cars. But then you think about what's an Uber driver, are they a worker or are they employee or are they something entirely else? And you think about the same thing, you know, what's someone selling a product on Etsy? Are there, are they an employee or are they an independent entrepreneur or are they something else? And I think what we, we, we have not really fully grappled with as a society is to come up with what's that something else. You know, we've created digital tools that unleash the potential of people to be nimble, but at the same time, you know, how do we provide people with basic, you know, needs of safety from healthcare insurance and basic necessities to be able to unleash their opportunity at a larger scale. So I think in some ways we've gone from having, you know, a digital divide in terms of uh, digital infrastructure to really having a digital divide in terms of uh, people's mindsets and their access to opportunity to take advantage of these digital tools. Certainly. You just made me think about something when you talked about like access to capital and what that means for like different communities. Do you have like any tips on like what somebody who might live in a rougher community be able to do if they want to like just help build more of an infrastructure for like businesses in their community? Entrepreneurship, innovation, and technology as these concepts that almost seem intimidating and and hard to reach for so many people. Um, that is, we make them feel like they're big and heavy. Like even you think about like our concepts of what an entrepreneur is, Most a lot of people quickly think of Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg and they think, well, if I can't build a billion dollar business or even a hundred million dollar business, what's the point of trying? And it, there's the stigma, but I'll give you an example. So there's a, a woman named Adrienne Haynes, and in Kansas City, she started launching a series of innovation districts in some of the uh, disadvantaged parts of the community. But her idea of an innovation district is not to start with like fancy incubators or fancy technologies, it's to bring communities together and actually have people talk and figure out what do we have to start with? What are the assets that we have right here? And how do we actually make use of what we already have? And what they've done is they found just by getting people into communities, you can actually get them in conversations, whether it's in living rooms or basements or even online, and actually talk about how do you make things better in our community? And then how do you actually provide opportunities that actually tap into what's available instead of what's missing? And that's what entrepreneurship is. It's actually taking, taking very little to make something great. Yes, certainly. I'm glad you just mentioned VC firms because I want to look a little bit at your experience, you know, on the on that side of the table. This year, in addition to a pandemic that has dismantled many businesses and left other businesses just barely standing, uh, we've dealt with a great deal of social unrest. What tips do you have for VC firms that might be hoping to work with more diverse founders? Diversity, equity, inclusion has moved to the mainstream as something that everybody should do just as part of the normal way of operating. Because if you don't do it, you're actually leaving money on the table. You know, opportunity is everywhere. And so when you have people who are you're working with that actually have those different perspectives and insights, they can actually provide that empathy and understanding and help lift up everybody around them. Mm. So I think for VC firms that are trying to do this, bringing in people into the firm itself that actually understand those different perspectives. And those include uh, black and brown founders, but they also include people in rural communities, people with mm. uh, disabilities, people who are veterans who deal with a whole different set of other issues, people from geographical areas that may not have had exposure to different kinds of opportunities. And then building out business models that are different. So a traditional venture capital model, for instance, you know, is focused on high growth. It takes a percentage of equity in exchange for the expectation that that equity is going to grow geometrically, go incredibly fast. 
But there are a lot of businesses where you can be a very, very successful business where an equity investment isn't justified from a, a traditional venture capital model. You can have revenue-based investing models. You can have profit-sharing models. And those are things uh, that uh, I think we, don't, we should be doing a lot more of, which is exploring different types of funding mechanisms to fill the gaps uh, for different types of investment opportunities. Certainly, certainly. And I'm glad that you, uh, you articulated the idea of like problem solving your relatives to business because at the end of the day like we tend to think of like all the bells and whistles that come with doing certain things instead of focusing on problem solving is really that important component of things i want to talk a little bit about your background as like almost like a what i would call like a world planner you know um in your book the rainforest you talk about like what it, what it looks like to replicate silicon valley and some of those ways of doing things elsewhere. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, what city would you tout as the next Silicon Valley? So in many ways, I think there is no next Silicon Valley in a narrow sense. Mm-hmm. Next Silicon Valley is actually an idea and a concept that's actually getting widespread. So I actually think of it uh, as perhaps the greatest legacy and the greatest gift of Silicon Valley is actually redefining what economic development looks like in the 21st century. What made Silicon Valley what it became, which is the attitude of risk-taking, the attitude of openness and creativity, and people willing to support each other to take a chance. And that kind of ability to dream and to help realize and problem solve around how to effectuate those dreams is really what made the Valley. The great thing about communities across the world doing that is it's actually totally free. You mentioned the book I wrote called The Rainforest, and it was basically taking that notion of Silicon Valley not as a place, but as a state of mind. A traditional economy was like a farm because it was industrial. You knew in advance what you wanted to grow, like a farm, and you would grow as much of that uh, as you could for as low a cost as possible. But if you had a weed on a farm, what would you do on a weed? Well, you would kill the weed, right? You don't want weeds on farms. But in a rainforest, what's a weed? Well, everything's a weed in a rainforest, right? So everything is a weed because everything has potential to grow into the most important plant in the entire rainforest. You just don't know in advance what it's going to look like. So what you want is you want a rainforest where you have that creativity and the openness and the spontaneity of a system that actually lets things grow. And they grow from being weeds into being flourishing plants. And then the question then is, well, how do you build rainforests? You actually build an environment. So it's the sunlight, it's the moisture, it's the water, it's the uh, nutrients in the soil, it's the interaction of all the plants and the animals in the system that actually make it flourish. And for human beings, that environment is deep in our heads and our hearts. It's actually the ways we believe things and the ways we think and the ways we interact and share with each other. And it's easy, it's infant to replicate and it's free. And we're finding now that in a lot of communities that have struggled economically, that the old models of economic development aren't working like they used to. Right. That you can't just do, you can't try to attract an auto plant. You can't attract another warehouse. And so what they're doing is they're actually thinking of entrepreneurship as an economic development model. They're saying we can actually revive our community not by trying to attract the next Ford plant or the next General Motors plant. Uh, we can actually reactivate our community from the bottom up, not the top down. From the bottom up, it's working with our entrepreneurs or small businesses to actually create wealth, to create opportunity, and to create a quality of life that actually has ripple effects across an entire uh, region. So instead of bringing jobs to your community, Victor is arguing that communities and investors should be looking to create jobs through supporting financial infrastructure that allows new businesses to thrive. Right. Then what? Right. Like, so what happens when a founder gets past the barriers to entrepreneurship and, and they have success? Do, do then the people totally disappear? Do they just get that one little slide in the pitch deck? 
I mean, how can humans be valuable to companies beyond just their wallets or trading their data or, or, or building some code for them? Here's Lolita Tab explaining what she thinks the investment world has been missing. I think business has missed a big point about, you know, really thinking about humans being at the center of everything and how community really has rung true and the importance of it has rung true since the beginning of time. Not so long ago, I was asked, tell me about your experience in community or with communities and why is it important to you? When did you start building community was, was actually the specific question. And I said, well, I grew up in community and if it wasn't for the community, my family wouldn't have survived literally in South Central Los Angeles. And so community is really important. I think at the core of what we are as human beings. I've also read studies that if you are lonely, um, you're more likely to die sooner. So there's that sense of, of human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it gets a little dark, right? But in in terms of you know venture capital and investing in community driven companies, we really believe that first of all, a community driven company is where the customers identify as members and where members are able to create value for each other. And that creates the stickiness factor where the members themselves will kick off the marketing and sales flywheel because they love the community that they're building, that they're part of, that they're creating and adding to. And the way we see it is that community-driven companies can be two flavors, two main flavors. One is the community itself can be a product or there could be a community created around a product. And so I'll give you two examples of what a community-driven company looks like. One is Peloton, right? So you have, you could technically think of it as a bike, right? You bike indoors, that's your thing. But the thing that makes it so different from its competitors is that it has a community behind it. And the community talks about the Peloton that they have on a daily basis. And then they, there's also this community behind it, right? Another example would be MongoDB, right? So more on the B2B side, where you have a community of, of technical folks coming together. So I know you well enough to know, we've had enough conversations that I know you find it very irksome if someone were to imply for a moment that, oh, she's saying the word community a lot. It must be a philanthropy, like uh, this must be philanthropy, right? Like your contrarian view is that this is not, that the use of community is a unique differentiation, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, there could be all types of communities, right? And you don't, you don't have, you can have grassroots communities. There's different kinds of communities that you can have. Um, the way that we're looking at community, it's really thinking about, um, for example, a customer acquisition cost. If you're at any typical company, you're worried about what your your spend on AdWords, how are you going to market, et cetera. When you have a community-driven company, your customers are literally your marketing vehicle. So that drives down customer acquisition cost. If you have a stickiness to it, right, there's also this concern of churn of folks, customers leaving. And if you have a place where there's community that people continuously come back to because they feel in community, because they're getting a solution or they're getting the support that they need or whatever you know challenge they're dealing with, whether personal or professional, 
you're going to get the stickiness factor that's going to decrease the churn of customers. So there you have two, two sets of uh, metrics to really consider, right? And then if you think about a third one is when you think about companies and their differentiators, right? Not features, but differentiators. You're always thinking about what are the ways that companies can make it difficult for other companies to copycat their business and so on and so forth. And creating a community, duplicating a community, that's not something that's easy to do. So the differentiation moat, exactly. Indeed. All right. All right. So this is not charity. This is a unique differentiation. That's a different thesis. How different is how you plan to measure success? Is you know, in fund one, what is going to be success for you five, seven, 10 years later? Right. This is a great question. I mean, <laughs> would you, what would the answer be for any other venture capitalist? Above market returns. So like what's the NASDAQ, what did the NASDAQ do or what did the Yale endowment do? And did I do better or worse? That's right. That's, that's it. That's how we define success. We are just like any other venture capital firm. We're looking for outsized returns. And we really believe that, again, community-driven companies will create the unicorns of the future. And we're doing it in a really unique way, right? Because success also means that we are leveraging community leaders to invest in community-driven companies that then expands our reach from a deal flow perspective. If you think about it, Silicon Valley does not have access to this broadly, you know, what, what people call a pipeline problem with people of color, women, and other underestimated founders. And so with our approach, it's not just, you know, here we have, we're going to do outsized returns. It's we're doing it in a differentiated way. We're doing it by tapping into these great operators, founders, and investors that have a unique edge on the community side. So we have broader reach into who we're investing in. And I think the between those two edges, we're going to, you know, blow it out of the water. Mm. So one of the many well-established facts of private market business investing that we, for some reason, don't always talk a lot about is just how few people actually succeed in VC. How many, how few funds do what you know, which is outperform markets. We've had a lot of dumb money over the last decade that, you know, the best way to succeed in VC is start with a billion dollars and you'll get a, you know, you end up with a few million left. <laughs> like, why is that? I mean, for as much as this sector talks about differentiation and and being contrarian, is your view that they haven't been all that contrarian in a while and you are presenting an example of going very different and that is why it would outperform? Yeah. So first, I think there's the there's this notion of thinking about what's happening in the VC space and who who is outperforming. And Kaufman has a, a quote, and now I can't remember the the statistic exactly, but basically it went to say funds with underestimated investors outperformed. And so I definitely think we have a nudge there. But you know, I do want to make a point of there is some misalignment in particular with large and later stage funds because their exit hurdles are that much bigger. But for smaller funds, like early stage funds like ours, I, I think the you know underperformance of funds has to do more 
uh, with more broadly with a homogeneous body of investors who perceive the world with similar approaches and, and similar pattern matching. And I very much believe that if we are to produce outsides returns, we have to build a heterogeneous investor community to be able to identify the unicorns of the future. Hmm. Sounds like you said that before. I like it. Maybe send us off with what should other investors, you know, they're either writing individual checks, they're doing it on their own. What's your push on them about people or community being one option for them to be contrarian or even just generally the push of doing things differently than what is done today. Do you, do you have any advice for that? I think having an open mind and knowing that this is a very nascent, I, I think still very much so industry with a lot of space of growth. And I, I think that if you have homogeneous thought and approach, you miss out on opportunity. And so I'm not saying be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, but if you identify something, an opportunity where we're leaving money on the table, I say take advantage of it. Don't be weary of questioning the status quo because after all, venture capital is all about risk and it's about, you know, if you go big, you go or go home. All right. That is it. Michael, the verdict. Are you sold on people? Uh, I was always sold on people, Chris. <laughs> what about you? I have to be the anti-person person. So no, I mean, me too, clearly, right? Like I, apparently I founded a community company, but I do think this is a very new case being made to an in investor land. Lolita is very careful to clarify that her thesis is purely about above market returns. People aren't charity to her. People reward entrepreneurs and investors when you invest in them. Right. And see, I love this. She's saying that those investors focused on a slightly better mobile app are completely missing where the next generation of big high growth companies are coming from. Lolita is saying that the, that the people, the community is a defensible moat. Mm, I can't believe you made me use that metaphor. But anyway, Victor, too, he's saying that the growing rates of entrepreneurship from people of all backgrounds and giving anyone a chance to bring their big idea forward is a major economic opportunity. This can give investors new wealth. This is positively cheery, Michael. I mean, with this year, we really need some of that. There's work to be done, but I do thank the positive spirit. Michael, thank you so much for being here. You got it, man. All right, that is it. The sixth episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love Off the Sidelines, I mean, even if you like it, subscribe. Even better, pretty please leave a review. It helps. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the reporting by Michael Butler and the time from Lee Latab and Victor Wang. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails with post-production by Max Graham. I am technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.